From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Rachel Gibson and Sarah Smolin, who are on the Education Policy Action Team for the League of Women Voters of Nebraska. Something I like to tell people is like, you know, a kid comes into a classroom and you're, yes, you're here to learn academics, but we're teaching an entire child. They're a person in progress. We're helping them become the adult who will contribute to our society one day. And so it benefits all of us to not just teach like, you know, two plus two is four, ABC one, two, three, but also to teach like, you can be in control and aware of your emotions and you can learn how to manage that and um, take care of your mental health. And ultimately just be a more well-rounded person by the time you graduate high school. We're talking about the fight over public education, public education's value to society, and the new initiative, Schools 101. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. The culture war these days is heavily focused on schools, with many prominent Republicans in Nebraska calling for heavy scrutiny and sometimes even defunding of public education. Today, Sarah Smolin and Rachel Gibson are here to discuss the education climate and some possible solutions to our culture war issues and real issues facing schools in the metro area and in the state in general. Smolin and Gibson are on the Education Policy Action Team for the League of Women Voters of Nebraska, which has just launched Schools 101, an awareness initiative for parents, neighbors, community groups, advocacy groups, and anyone impacted by public education, which they'll tell you is everybody. Here is our conversation. So there's ostensibly this premium placed on the opinions of this nation's founders, which I think generally gets oversimplified into this mythology that these were all a bunch of guys who agreed on everything. And I think actually it might be a good starting place to start there because my understanding is that one of the first vocal proponents of public education in America was Thomas Jefferson. Um, what, what exactly is the origin of public schools as, as an American concept? That is such a great question, and and one of the things that we really highlight in our Schools 101 program is looking at the history and how public schools have gotten to where they are today, and and all the different pieces that have been played uh, played part in that. And when you think about the founders, um, part of their interest in having a public education system, or at least an education system, because at that point it wasn't as widespread, was the concept that um, the electorate was the people who made the decisions about our government. So they should probably be informed. Uh, And so that kind of began this concept of we need to have an informed electorate. And of course, then that meant something very different. (laughs) You know, that wasn't women, that wasn't individuals of color. Um, Sometimes it wasn't even landowners or wealthy folks, but it did set that expectation that um, education was something that was necessary to make our, our, uh, country functional, just from a political standpoint. Um, so that it really built the foundation. And then from there, you know, you can almost follow the different waves of uh, history and culture within the history of our public schools to see the developments of ourselves as a nation. So the idea that uh, an educated electorate would be better than an uneducated one, just to like, just to make it really clear, really broad, the value of public education is that there's a shared sort of skill set across the nation, and then in theory, also kind of a shared culture. Is that right? Yes. And the idea about uh, developing a shared experience and shared culture really expanded um, later in, in public school development. And 
and just really took off once Massachusetts, which is the first state that created a state-funded public education. Um, it was the place where everyone went. You learned the same set of stories. You learned the same set of, um, you know, tools to your disposal in your 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 work. Um, you know, we always talk about, Sarah and I always talk about how it's that unifying experience of remembering parachute day. And, you know, if you say, remember in gym class when they got the big parachute and you got to sit under it and everyone was like, oh my goodness, parachute day. Um, so yes, it is definitely a, a, a cultural touch point, um, but also just gives us kind of that unifying experience um, no matter where you are in the U.S. Yeah, it's interesting to me that so much of the critique of public schools coming from right-wing pundits right now, uh, it's sort of stuck in this space where it's like you, they can't quite decide if public institutions are good and maybe even infallible and like you can never propose defunding them if it's the military or police. Uh, but then there's also this idea that, well, maybe actually institutions are evil socialism and maybe that's public schools or like in the Don Bacon's pretty critical stuff like public options for health care. So I mean, like, wh- why is it that public schools, at least right now in the current culture war, aren't a source of patriotic pride like how the military is often framed? That's a really good question. You know, it's kind of it's tricky to, to kind of just like stick to like what we know to be the truth um, in regards to public education. Um, and we kind of, you know, as we've observed the way that public education has changed over the years, um, the different kinds of legislation we have introduced like nationwide and on a local level as well to either support our students or to limit things or to um, attempt to protect them from some sort of discrimination. Um, I think you can kind of see a a back and forth. Um, There's always been like kind of a push and a pull. Um, And it's mainly, I mean, I I could never fathom to like be an expert on that subject. Um, But I think I see a lot of it sort of kind of being, you know, whatever serves us at the moment as a whole. Like if it, you know, when we look at like the start of the pandemic, teachers were heroes, you know, in March of 2020, when they sent everyone home and teachers had to pivot once again and like sort of reinvent the wheel when it came to education, Um, They were our heroes. But by the time we rolled back into the classroom in one way, either virtually or in person or some kind of hybrid, but that fall, they were kind of on the attack again. Um, And so I think I don't think it's ever been like the American institution we say we see with like um, the military. It's more so just sort of what serves us up at the time and what serves certain politicians at the time. It's pretty easy to turn the eye on educators or education um, because that's something everybody can kind of get behind. We all have kids. We all want them to learn. Um, and so it's easy to kind of create sort of like you can be your hero or your boogeyman whenever it serves you. I was just going to add on to that. I think I completely agree with what Sarah said. I think it also strikes at the heart, particularly with education, because it's our kids. You know, it's and Sarah and I both have kids um, who go to public school and um you know, it's something so close. And it, particularly after the pandemic, I think sending our kiddos back out into school and almost a feeling of like, I can't, I can't control what they're getting. I can't protect them every second of every day. Um, So I think that kind of heightened worry and fear about something we're so, so, uh, so precious to us um, makes it kind of an easy target um, for, for folks who want to see it done differently. It's it's interesting, though, because my sense is that uh, a lot of people – I believe there's a lot of polling that says that in Nebraska, people for the most part like their public schools. 
which makes it almost counterintuitive that it becomes this political target. And my sense is a lot of the political targeting is done in bad faith. It's not really that tethered to what's even going on in schools so much as, like you said before, this boogeyman that seems plausible enough in the media circles. And then a lot of the times teachers are not really able to respond to any of that critique. So scapegoating without the ability to respond or clarify becomes kind of this easy media manipulation. But I mean, like, picking picking an institution that's broadly popular seems like an odd strategy. Why do you think uh, that the, the, the public schools became a target? Hmm, that is a good question. Um, I think that, again, it goes back to that. You can't control what necessarily your kids are getting every second of every day, and that's where you're sending them. Um, and it's also a place where you're exposed to new new ideas uh, and and different ways of living. And so I think it strikes at the heart of, um, you know, people's fears of their families growing up to be something that's different than them, whether that's well founded or not. Um, but that concept of I'm I'm handing my child off something so precious to me to this institution, uh, I think that's that's a part of it. Um, I also think that some of the there's just a perfect alignment of a bunch of different things. And particularly in Nebraska, some of the curriculum reviews and some of the funding reviews and things like that happened at this time, which was an easy target to to take and seize on and turn it into something that maybe not, it wasn't truly what it was about. So for example, the, the statewide um, health standards that included um, an element of sex education. You know, anytime you talk about something about that could be contentious, whether it's, uh, you know, sex ed or um, talking about the history of racism in our country. Those are just such hot button issues that that when you amplify them, it becomes something that's way beyond what it started as. And I think that's what we saw a lot in the past few years in education in Nebraska is uh, that narrative has taken hold. And so that's the purpose of our, our program of Schools 101 is to to really reach parents who, you know, you mentioned so many folks are supportive of public schools, you know, and like I said, Sarah and I are those people. And as we sat down, we're like, do we know how education works? <laughs> do we know how the board plays a role in this? So our our hope is that we're able to educate parents who are invested in our interests, but are busy, you know, living lives and, and raising kids and having jobs um, to get past some of that, that bombastic, um, rhetoric that isn't always based in in a factual experience in Nebraska. Um, Tom, you mentioned that like it, it is a well-loved public institution and it, so it doesn't make sense that it would become a target um, for all this attack that we're seeing. And you're right, it do this doesn't make sense. It, it doesn't seem like a good idea um, to attack something that we all rely on and we all need. It is a cornerstone of our democracy and a pillar of our economy to have well-educated people. Um, so it wouldn't make any sense. And I think that's kind of the thing there is that um, there's a very strong element of fear. Um, and especially when you attach it to people's children, um, because again, people, you know, parents in this country, like I, every parent, you know, we're protective of our children. We want what's best for them. We want them to be safe, especially when we're entrusting them to other adults for, you know, a big chunk of the, the year. Um, and so I think that the tactic there is we know it's easy to prey on fear and it's easy to um, shape a narrative without much actual information. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Sarah Smolin and Rachel Gibson, who are on the Education Policy Action Team from the League of Women Voters of Nebraska. We're discussing the new awareness campaign called Schools 101. 
What do you think about the state of Nebraska public education? Do you want to see changes? Are things going well for you? What do you think? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. And I'm glad that you brought up uh, that you're what you're here for today, Schools 101. So I think maybe we could transition a little bit to that, and it'll, it'll carry over a lot of these ideas we started with here, I think, into where we're going. But you're here today as part of the Education Policy Action Team from the League of Women Voters of Nebraska. And so maybe we could start, before we get to Schools 101, for anyone who's not familiar with the League, what, what's a basic overview of its mission? The League of Women Voters of Nebraska is a, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization that's part of a larger uh, nationwide organization, which is the League of Women Voters of the U.S. We've been around for 100 years. Uh, our beginnings are really in the suffrage movement in, in achieving the right to vote for some women and kind of moved from that into continuing to engage um, voters and protect democracy. So our focus really is um having folks who know how to engage in their in their governance, because we are our government, and then also having that be an informed um, an informed voter. So that's really our, our focus. We do that in a couple different ways. Um, lots of people think of us as the folks who register voters and um, answer questions about candidates and dates and things like that. And that is definitely one section of what we do. We also have the side, which is what Sarah and I work with, is our um, advocacy side, which is really focused on helping educate the public. And so our action team, which is the uh, education action team, really looked at where we're at and said, how can we most help voters? And felt that, you know, making a crash course and how education works in our, our state would be the best way we could do that. It's interesting uh, when I think about some of the controversy over public schools of when it becomes sort of a cultural battleground. Because I imagine, uh, as you said at the beginning of this, with sort of like the origins of public education as a concept, uh, you know, who was able to get access to it was pretty limited at the beginning. And it's slowly broadened as sort of the, even this idea of who's a citizen, who's a person, what does that mean in America, broadened. Um, do you feel like it's some of the pushback is related to that broadening of who gets access to education. Like, I don't know exactly what it was like in, uh, you know, 100 years ago during suffrage, but I I know that it's been sort of controversial of letting women into schools, uh, and that's sort of changed as well. Obviously, we have Brown versus Board of Education and a bunch of different elements where this idea of a shared culture that goes back to Jefferson has gotten more complicated. Does the idea of it as a political target sort of come out of this idea of who gets access and then this idea of maybe we don't actually want as much of a shared culture as people wanted a couple hundred years ago? That's such a great question. I think on the whole, and this is something we've seen in all of our work as the League of Women Voters, because our focus really is just getting voters engaged, things have become more polarized. Um, and they've also become more all or nothing and extreme. Um, so I think it's easy to, you know, be, be backed into the corner and say, okay, are you for or against this particular thing? And when it comes to our public schools, some of the shared history, uh, I think with the resurgence of um, some of the white supremacist movement that we're seeing, and I think some of the um, anti-LGBTQ plus that we're seeing, um, support for those communities, and, and at the same time also, um, you know, a resurgence of interest in in, in religion. Um, I think all of those are converging on this system 
that has is super complicated with our public schools, but also our private schools and where our taxes go and things like that. Um, so I think that to your question of, of, you know, is it that common shared experience? I think we have been trained as humans over the past, you know, decade that we're in Facebook groups of groups we like. We listen to podcasts that align with, um, you know, our political views. And we've become used to that idea of uh, the way I see things is is the one way that it is and should be. And I think that is trying to get um, placed on our schools in a way, um, which honestly, from this project, one thing I loved was realizing how much of a community builder our schools are, our public schools. They are community schools. Um, and that was a, a good reminder for myself because we do just get in this idea of, um, you know, this is my group and I'm going to select only the things that apply to my group. And I think public schools challenge that in a way, in a good way, in a good way. I noticed in the, the website, the Schools 101 website, you refer to them as our schools, which that word our feels like a linguistic move toward acknowledging it as something that everybody can participate in and that everybody can have that positive community element. Uh, that The positive community element can really be something that people can be proud of. Uh, and if they're concerned about it, similarly, they can also get involved, right? It, it's sort of like moving from this institution that we see as separate to seeing it as something that we all have a place, uh, you know, in helping, you know, perpetuate and improve. That's linguistics has been a really important part of this conversation um, because we started noticing um, certain terms being used that didn't that were new to us when we were talking about it because we talk about public schools. Um, and I started noticing the term government schools, which feels um, kind of foreign and removed uh, a little bit. And I kind of thought, well, it's not a government. It's not a government school. It's my community school. It's the one across the street. It's it's the teachers I know and, and the folks who live in my community. Um, so throughout this, we've been really thoughtful about the language we use. So we're actually reflective of what um, what is happening in our community and in our schools. And they are are there's you know, over 30,000 educators and staff members who live across our state. Um, so even when you take out the educational benefit, there's an economic benefit. Those are the folks who are in our communities. Uh, so we really do emphasize that idea that these are our schools and parents should be involved and community members should be involved. And let's understand the structure um, so that they can involve in a, be involved in a really meaningful way. We were very intentional about using um, group focused words like our emphasizing that even if you don't have a child who's in public education at the moment, you still experience the benefits of public education. Um, whether that's, you know, you work with people who have an education, um, your neighbors with them, you know, it touches every corner of our communities. And so we wanted to really bring that in. And especially with schools 101, when we describe who that's for, it is for parents and it is, you know, grandparents, family members who have a direct connection to our public schools, but it's also for anybody else in the community who, by extension, benefits from that. And so, and I don't think that's something a lot of people are aware of when we're having these conversations about what's happening in our public schools. If people don't have a child who is in public school at the moment, they kind of excuse themselves from that conversation. But the reality is that we all have a vested interest in this and we all need to be knowledgeable and participating in that process. 
I think this may be a time where it's worth going to those core questions that the School 101 uh, mission sort of is centered around. And so the first one that you have on there, maybe we could do kind of like a streamlined version of these uh, and see where that branches off. But the first one, it's, it's, it's kind of a big question, but I guess it is an important one. How do schools work in Nebraska? Let's start there. All of our schools, uh, we have public schools, we have um, private schools, and then we have uh, folks who are homeschooled. And those are kind of the three main buckets. Um, 90% of, between 80 and 90% of our students given the year uh, are in our public schools. So uh, our K through 12 schools. Our schools are funded through our taxes um, and rely very heavily on our local taxes, um, which is just how the structure in the US is set up. Uh, we're a very decentralized education system. Um, and there's benefits and, and drawbacks to that. But one of the great things about being so locally focused is that's where the funding decisions happen. That's where a lot of the education uh, curriculum decisions actually happen is at that local level. Um, the local level also proves some challenges, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But um, that's generally how we fund things is primarily through our local taxes. Um, Schools in our state, uh, one thing I want to note about kind of how funding works, because this is uh, one interesting area that I, that I think there's actually a lot to be done in our legislature about and something that I just don't think folks are in the weeds on. Um, the way we fund our schools, big picture, is looking at the needs of a school and then looking at the expected resources of the school. And this is done at the state level. This is where this formula called TIOSA um, our funding formula is done. It looks at the needs of the schools. So for example, if you have a large population of English language learners, um, you know it recognizes that that may cost a little more. Conversely, if you have one school that's 40 miles from some of its students, you know the cost to transport is going to be higher. So it looks at the, the needs of a school given its situation, and then it looks at how much it anticipates the school will have in resources, again, in those taxes and things like that. For the schools that those don't match, that's where the state will then step in and provide um, extra money to schools whose needs outweigh their resources. So that's one big point of conversation is how to um, have that continue to be equitable and making sure that everyone across the state um, is investing in our education in a fair and equitable sort of way. So that is big picture how the school funding in Nebraska works. Well, it's, it's a big one. Uh, it's a big question. There's a lot that we could get into the weeds with. So I guess we'll see where it goes. But just to continue to go through these basic questions, it's kind of a framework. Uh, maybe, Sarah, you could take the next one, which is who attends our schools? Um, so currently there is about just under 330,000 students in um, the state of Nebraska. Um, and those are get, kids who ages from five to 12, or not five to 12, five to 18, K through 12th grade. Um, Seven percent of them are English language learners, like Rachel's mentioned. Um, English is not their first language, and so they require some extra um, programming um, in order to thrive in our schools. Um, 13 percent of those kids are gifted. Um, 16 percent of them fall under the umbrella of special education. Um, and then 46 percent of our students are on free or reduced lunch. But yeah, a lot, the majority of, of children in Nebraska who go to school use public education. The other handful are, ten, are either homeschooled um, or uh, go to various private schools. 
um, of varying sizes. You know, there are private schools that have, you know, the burger ones in the area like Brown L. Talbot or Creighton Prep, and then also like very, really tiny ones that have maybe 50 students. Um, and they are just, you know, kids with varying, you know, academic needs. And so like, um, when we specifically talk about special education, a lot of people assume that that is people who need or students who need, you know, mobility aids or um, are somewhere along the severe profound spectrum. But really, the umbrella of special education covers a wide variety of things, including, you know, ADHD or dyslexia, um, kids who need to work with a speech pathologist um, just for some speech therapy. And so I think that's definitely a thing that we um, don't consider when we're talking about public education and how to properly fund it is that um, there's a lot of kids who do need those special education resources. Um, and that's something that is not always provided in a private school, depending on the size and the resources available to them. Um, so we definitely want to keep that in mind when we're thinking about our students and, the, and their needs and how we can best create public education that helps them thrive. I'm talking with Rachel Gibson and Sarah Smolin, who are on the Education Policy Action Team from the League of Women Voters of Nebraska. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. We have a lot of hours of content here on Riverside Chats now. Our backlog has over 100 episodes. We're expanding into live events. And we have an exciting future for the show that we hope to be able to get to you. To make the show as good as it can be and to continue to give you the kinds of conversations that you listen for, the reason why you subscribed in the first place, to hear coverage of arts, ideas, politics, whatever it is that brings you here every time, please consider becoming a supporter of the show by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, whatever you can afford, and really whatever you think the show is worth, which may be a zero, in which case, ouch. But okay, if you are interested in becoming a supporter, please look in the podcast notes. There should be a link in there that you can find that gives you all the information you need. Otherwise, thank you for considering supporting the show, and more, more importantly, thank you for listening. I heard the show about ranked choice voting and want to mention an alternative that is less complicated than ranked choice voting. It's called approval voting. Fargo and St. Louis use ballots that say vote for all you approve. Approval voting is it's easier for voters to understand because the design of the ballot is less complicated than ranked choice voting. And when it comes to modifying the tabulation machines, switching to ranked choice voting is more costly than if we were to switch to approval voting. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Remember, you can check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. And while you're there, please leave us a review. Today I'm talking with Rachel Gibson and Sarah Smolin about the controversial education climate here in Nebraska and some possible solutions. Smolin and Gibson are both on the Education Policy Action Team of the League of Women Voters of Nebraska, which has just launched Schools 101 an awareness initiative for parents, neighbors, community groups, advocacy groups, and everyone impacted by public schools. Here's the rest of our conversation. The next question, I think it's all maybe worth bundling the two of them because you've got who teaches at our schools, which might sound like the same thing, but I think is a very different question from the following one, which is who makes decisions at our schools. 
Yes, those are very different questions. Very different <laughs> So the folks that teach in Nebraska schools are our community, our community members. There are friends, there are neighbors, there are family members. Um, there's about uh, just shy of 40,000 um, teachers and staff around the state that work in our schools, which is a big chunk of folks. Um, and one thing that we wanna share is the idea of all the different people that make our schools work. So we think a lot of teachers as we completely should because they're in the classroom all the time with kids. Uh, but there's also the the paras who are, are assisting teachers. There's the custodial staff. Um, there's the technology person that's making sure every, all the iPads run smoothly or the tablets or whatever um, you know kids are using in, in their given school. Um, so it really is beyond just just necessarily those teachers in the classroom, but it's a whole microcosm of folks um, making that work for the student. And it's also a microcosm of people who can have a positive influence on kids. Uh, and I think that's really important too. And again, why we go back to the idea of it's a community school, it's our school, because it's, you know, the concept of it takes a village that really is embodied um, in, in our public schools. So those are the folks who work in our schools. Just some um, some statistics about uh, who those people are. A good chunk of our teachers actually have um, advanced degrees. So around 50% of our teachers have a master's degree, have additional training of some kind. Um, and they are specialists in their area. And I think with a lot of the conversations about teacher shortage and um, looking at some of the things that other states are doing. Um, for example, Florida is um, opening basically, if you've had a military background, if you're a vet, you can um, teach in schools. While it's great to be creative, um, I think that undermines the fact that these individuals have gotten a four-year degree, gotten additional training, got additional certification, every year go back and doing continuing education. Um, it is a profession, and I think sometimes that gets a little lost. It's not babysitting, it's teaching, and, and those are very, very different things. I'd like to also add, in Nebraska, um, we have one of the most rigorous teacher certification procedures in the entire country. Um, when you get certified as a teacher fresh out of college after completing your student teacher experience, um, you know, you have an initial license and then your license expires every five years. And what those teachers are doing, not only are they actively teaching and gaining, you know, the benefit of that experience, they're also attending a lot of professional development. Um, you know, when those on those days where the kids are at home, but the teachers are in the building, they're doing that pro professional development. They're doing reading on their own time about, you know, the newest techniques. They're sharing information. So our teachers are experts at teaching and they're experts at how kids learn. They know it better than anyone else. And they also know what's going to work and what's not. Um, so just sort of segueing into like when it comes to our decision makers, um, there's like several, you know, each school building has kind of its own internal infrastructure as part of as far as like who is responsible for what and who makes decisions for the whole building. And so, you know, you've got your administrators and you also have department heads, counselors, all of them kind of collaborate together um, within each building. So when you think about the number of school buildings that you might see while you're out and about driving, each one of them has their own kind of board that helps make decisions. Um, and they're taking guidance from the district 
um, board to like, you know, we have our OPS school board. They're providing guidance for each of those individual buildings. And then above them, we're looking at the State Board of Education, who is then providing guidance. So there's many, many layers of decisions. Um, but I, one thing I want to emphasize is each layer is further and further away from an actual classroom with actual students. Um, and so that's something I think it's really important when we are electing people to be making those decisions for us. We need to be looking at their experiences within public education. If it's somebody who maybe never attended public schools, maybe they don't have children in public schools, maybe they've never, I really do believe that teachers should be on these boards making these choices. Um, but we really need to look at that because you can say, I, I mean, I'm thinking about some of the legislation that came in in our last session regarding schools. And I think there was a piece of legislation that said, we're going to have all the kids put their cell phones in a box for the whole school day, and then they can't have their cell phone at school. And that is a, <laughs> it was, it was comical because that's a technique that teachers have been doing for years and years and years to varying degrees of success, but to legislate it. Um, without doing any prior research, or, research or, or talking to anybody who's actually in a, a classroom. I mean, you tell you go into a classroom and you tell a 17 year old, hey, I want you to put your phone in a box and you can have it back at the end of the class period and then see what happens. Um, so I think it's really important that we remember each layer of guidance is further removed from the classroom. And it's really important that those decision makers are seeking out um, the input and the thoughts of the people who are actually in the room with the kids who are doing this every single day. One of the big issues that is being faced right now by several districts, in a particular OPS, after the huge uh, amount of teachers who just left, I mean, I think it was over 500 teachers in the last year. Uh, I talked to Bree Full about this, uh, who's running for OPS school board. What's the incentive for people to become teachers right now when you're going to enter into, again, a lot of this culture war scapegoating, some difficult financial questions about are you going to be paid comparably for the amount of education you have as you might in a different field? We're sort of at a point where, like you said, there are some states where the solution is make it a lot easier to become a teacher. But I don't know that that's quite addressing the real problem of why you have these shortages in the first place. So, I mean, what do you, what's your sense either of you about how to address this and how to make sure that there will be staff to have public schools? Um, I think it's important to point out um, nobody ever gets into teaching for the money. Um, usually if you talk to anybody and you're like, why did you want to become a teacher? Most of them are going to have a story that's something like, well, I had this teacher at this grade level or several teachers over the course of their time in school that really just showed them a love of learning or touched them in a really um, emotional and powerful way and created a huge impact that inspired them to continue on in education. Um, people don't really get into the money. That being said, though, I will always advocate for paying teachers more. That's something like when you look at the amount of money they're making and the pay scales that they're on and the fact that in order to move up on our pay scales, they have to increase in the years that they've been teaching and also in the kind of education they have. And this information is available to anybody. You can find um, the contracts that the unions agree on on pretty much any school district's website. So just looking at um, OPS, I think as you know, as recently as I can remember, I think um, the pay scale taps out at around 85000 a year. And that is with 20 plus years of experience and a PhD. Um, so comparably in other fields, that is pennies, just not comparable at all. Um, and so I think there needs to be active plans for increasing um, the pay for teachers. Um, but also 
if that's not fiscally possible quickly, I think there should always be a plan to like move toward paying them more. But another thing you could also do is just sort of lighten their load. Um, and so that's going to be a matter of, you know, you might get a little creative, but it, it could just be hiring more staff, hiring more paraprofessionals um, to come in and, and create, get smaller class sizes, hiring more teachers um, just so that you can split it up. And again, all of this is going to cost money. If you have more kids and you have more teachers, you're going to need better facilities, bigger facilities or more facilities. Um, but that is definitely like you ask any teacher what's going to make them stay. It's going to be smaller class sizes, more planning time and more money. And I don't think it's too big of an ask to make those happen. It's gonna cost money, yes, but the ultimate payout in the long run is going to benefit all of us. Yeah, I would say that um, some of the things that will help with the teacher shortage um, and that we'll be facing for for years, I think, uh, are, are simple. Um, some of them cost. Uh, some of them are more complicated, and I would agree with Sarah that paying teachers more is a huge, um, a huge piece of it. Um, but some of it is also free. Listen to your teachers. That's a huge one, and I think that gets lost. You know, teachers will tell you, as Sarah said, what they need, um, and it could be as simple as one thing we hear a lot is protected planning periods. So. Teachers need to be able to plan what they're going to, how they're going to teach this week, or, you know, my kids aren't getting this concept, so we need to get creative about it. They have time to do that in their day, but if that time always gets pulled for them to be a sub in another class or to do lunch duty at that time, or all those sorts of things, um, that takes away the ability. And teachers will tell you that. So I think that a real key piece is listen to the teachers, listen to the students, listen to the folks who are in the room and let them tell you what they what they need. Class size is another one that we hear a lot. Things like covering costs for classroom supplies. And and actually all of these bills, all of these have been uh, bills in our legislature in the past few sessions. So instead of spending our time, you know, restricting curriculum or um, things like that, this is the type of work we should be doing, asking teachers what they need and passing legislation that supplies supports them in their class sizes, in protecting their time, um, in providing, you know, the funds for them to be able to to supply their own school rooms. So I think those are a couple ways um, that we can start moving towards addressing that teacher shortage problem. So what are some of the legislative goals or perhaps battles that might be coming in the next legislative session? In the upcoming legislative session, uh, if we continue to see some of the same types of bills that we have seen in the past few years. I think one big area is gonna be school funding. A big portion of that is how we manage our state funds versus our local funds to provide for schools. And there's already been several bills introduced um, over the past few years to address that. So I think that will be one, one key area. The other piece with that is that our school funding is tied to our property taxes which are, are the amount we pay in property taxes in Nebraska is quite high. So that's uh, tethered to it in a way. So the, the, the complicated nature of that, I think, will, will lead us to some bills. Um, one of the other bills that I anticipate will come back uh, again, I think this will be the fourth or fifth time that it's been brought, is um, something called the Opportunity Scholarship Act, uh, which is 
it's a complicated way of, of doing it, but basically providing um, benefits for folks who donate money for private school tuition. So it's a very roundabout way of, of using public dollars towards um, private school tuition. So that will probably be back as well. Uh, I also think that we'll see some pushes for, um, as you called it earlier, the culture war issues. Um, This past session, we had a a pretty broad bill proposed um, related to teaching the history of racism and teaching um, about relationships and things like that. And, And that hearing was full and a lot of people had a lot to say, which was wonderful. That's what should happen. Um, in a in a democracy, uh, but I anticipate that we'll see more bills like that. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Rachel Gibson and Sarah Smolin, who are on the Education Policy Action Team from the League of Women Voters of Nebraska. We're discussing the new awareness campaign called Schools 101. What do you think about the state of education in Nebraska? Do you want to see changes? Let us know what they are. Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may feature on an upcoming show. I poke fun at uh, a quote that Governor Ricketts gave to the World Herald a lot because he's made this a big deal. And Jim Pillen, who looks likely to replace him potentially in the upcoming election, uh, has also made this a pet issue. But it seems like both of them struggle to define the concept. I think there's two ways to take that. One is maybe it's not as much of a priority because it's not even worth really having a coherent theory of what it is that you're fighting. And the other is... Sometimes it's uh, advantageous for control or power purposes to have a vague enemy because then you can make whatever you're looking at that you don't like fit into that mold. So, I mean, what do you make of the critical race theory focus in our discourse over schools right now? Uh, So just like straight off the bat, critical race theory is a theory that is taught in legal school. Um, It's a legal theory for a way of looking at the law. That's the book definition of critical race theory. The um, version of critical race theory that they're talking about when they're talking about it being taught in public schools is just teaching history from a perspective that is not white. So that would be, you know, when you look at like the founding fathers and, you know, going back to like Thomas Jefferson and all that, there were a lot of um, heterosexual white men in the room um, who wrote a version of history. There were also a lot of people who do not identify by any of those terms. Um, and they experience the same history, but with different outcomes. Um, and so what we're looking at, we would like, educators would like the opportunity to be able to teach each of those perspectives and to kind of understand the whole story, not just one side of it. Um, but it's being branded as critical race theory and sort of a way to make white kids feel bad for being white. No educator is going to be doing that. We just want to be very clear about that. Um, And so I think the fear is that the um, image of America being sort of like the standing, uh, you know, symbol of freedom and liberty for the whole world um, isn't the entire story. And to have that challenge would be to undo a lot of the things that we have thought and felt about our country for a long time, which isn't a bad thing. It's fine to be critical. It's we want to be critical thinkers. We want to look at mistakes of our past and see how we can improve and um you know, try to repair the damage that has happened for many of many people who call themselves Americans. Um, So I don't think it's a thing we should, I think we need to understand what's actually being taught in schools. We need to understand that having our points of view challenge is good and healthy for everyone. 
um, and that nobody is trying to demonize anybody in this country. We're just trying to include everyone in the history of how we got to where we are. Sometimes that means that we're looking at things that were very heinous and ugly. That's just the reality of it. Um, but I think we can all, um, and nobody's going to come into a kindergarten classroom and like give them like the full, you know, graphic details of the Holocaust. Nobody's going to do that. We're going to do it at age appropriate levels. Um, and we're going to help kids understand that. Another term that I think is also getting tossed out as one of those kind of um, signal words is socio-emotional learning. That's starting to get attacked as well. And when we talk about that, we're only just talking about learning how to recognize and manage emotions on a day-to-day -day basis. And this is something that's being taught, whether you're aware of it or not. As parents, we're teaching our children how to manage your emotions, how to recognize those feelings. And so we're just trying to be more intentional about bringing that into the school system as well. You know, when you come into class, maybe you had a bad day. Maybe we need to learn how to calm ourselves down so that we can focus on our learning. Maybe we need to learn how to express the things that are frustrating us with words rather than acting out or shutting down. Uh, something I like to tell people is like, you know, a kid comes into a classroom and you're, yes, you're here to learn academics, but we're teaching an entire child. They're a person in progress. We're helping them become the adult who will contribute to our society one day. And so it benefits all of us to not just teach like, you know, two plus two is four, ABC one, two, three, but also to teach like, you can be in control and aware of your emotions and you can learn how to manage that and um, take care of your mental health and ultimately just be a more well-rounded person by the time you graduate high school. What do you think is the root of the pushback against emotional learning or this, this sort of approach to being more cognizant of emotions in learning? I think there's a, an overall push to be uh, the concept of bat to basics, which honestly has never been how we uh, do our public schools in the United States. Um, you know, when you think about the, the turn of the century and we had a lot of um, European immigrants, you know, school was the place where you went to learn how to be an American. Uh, it, it was that, as you mentioned earlier, kind of that unifying experience. So I think this um, there's a real push to this back to basics, just teach the subjects. But that's not how our schools have ever worked. And that's not really how the world works. Um, I also think that people, if they take a second and actually think about what they're wanting their children to get out of school or what, you know, maybe someone who doesn't have kids, what they expect a school aged kid would do. A lot of that happens in the school. So, you know, when we talk about social emotional learning, that's like my kindergartner. Part of that, if you look at like the, the guidelines and the curriculum, it's like sharing. <laughs> so it's it's basic concepts to you know provide kids a, a framework um, to work through. So and again, I think that because it's not that idea of back to basics, um, you know, just teach the the core subjects, which it never has been, is part of the reason that there's there's some pushback against it. I also just think it's another way to, um, it's another concept kind of like CRT or uh, something of that nature to try to suggest that maybe schools are teaching things that you wouldn't as a parent. But if you actually look at the social emotional learning, uh, I bet most parents are already doing that in their home as well. I will say, uh, watching the live stream of the state legislature, maybe maybe some of those members could use some social emotional learning too. See a lot of temper tantrums. A lot of big feelings in the room. A lot of big feelings in the room. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
<laughs> All right. Well, so as we as we start to wrap up here, let's go from these sort of uh, the negative problems to the positive promise. What 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 do you think? the future of public schools could look like uh, if there is an investment from communities, if there's an investment both of money, interest? I mean, what, what's the promise of what a, a great public school could be in 10 years? <laughs> the dream, small class sizes. <laughs> um, I, I, one thing I've loved about putting together the Schools 101 program is it reminded me how integrated our community schools are in our neighborhoods and how much they do um, for our communities. And I think that's what a successful school looks like is a place where kids feel safe going, um, a place where you make friends, uh, where you learn things, where you have that support system, um, and a place where parents feel welcome to be engaged family, you know, other community members feel like that's, that's an important part of their, their community. So I think that what a it, very, very big picture theoretical, um, what that looks like is a school full of teachers who feel supported, um, respected, appreciated for the wonderful work that they do. Um, and parents who feel invested, like they can communicate with their teachers, parents who feel like they sh- can be on the PTA or they can run for school board. Um, and be invested. And mostly there's a sense of trust. Trust that teachers, they've been trained, they know what they're doing. Trust that when you hand off your kid in the morning, that they're going to a safe place um, where they're gonna get a a great education um, that will help them be successful economically later in life. So for anybody who wants to learn more specifically about Schools 101, where, where should they go? What do they need to do to get involved? Well, we have a website that has all of our information. Um, we have like a presentation that we you can sign up for us to give to your community group, um, or even just like if it's a group of friends in a home, like we'll come out, we'll give the presentation, we'll have question and answers. But we've also, um, one of the wonderful things about our website is we've broken that information down into very easily digestible parts. There's um, short YouTube videos, there's handouts, there's just like little graphics. And so it's very easily accessible. And that was very important to us in the creation of this whole thing was that anybody can just grab a quick bit and learn and have some information on hand to share with, you know, anyone and everyone. And that's kind of our goal. We want this information to get out to everyone, especially um, approaching midterm elections. We want them to be um, equipped with the knowledge so that they can make a choice um, in the ballot box uh, that is something they feel good about and something they feel qualified to make. You know, when I ran for city council, I heard a lot of people say, well, I don't feel like I know enough about politics to make a good choice. And that's simply not true. Um, Everybody, if you got a brain, you can figure out who to vote for. Um, And we're just providing the information there that helps people feel empowered to be able to make a choice they feel good about. Our website also serves as a place um, to kind of be a debunking myths, if you will. Uh, We take great pains to cite all of our sources, um, to link directly to information, reports, things like that. Uh, we try to kind of vet our sources to make sure they're as nonpartisan as, as we are able to have them be. The goal is really, as Sarah said, to help people feel informed, but also to become the place where it's like, okay, I'm, I know that this is factual. There's a lot of misinformation swirling around, you know, what what's the actual thing here? 
Um, so that's hopefully also what what our um, website and of course you can follow the league on Twitter and Instagram and and we share information there as well. And so what's what's the the actual URL people should go to to look? LWVNebraska.org/schools-101. All right, and we'll put that in the show notes as well for anyone who didn't catch it. But Rachel and Sarah, thank you for sharing your vision and your mission here. I really appreciate getting to talk to you today. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, and our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today, and please, we need reviews. Please give us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.